live from Orlando, Florida at the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts. This is the Cood Street Podcast. I am Gary Wolf. Jonathan Strawn cannot be with us here in Orlando uh, to talk to John Kessel. So we have a substitute imitation Jonathan Strawn in the name of James Patrick Kelly, who also has a very unusual plan to publish his new book, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, John, for both being here. Pleasure to be Uh, here. And it's um, uh, we're going to start off with The Moon and the Other, which is your first novel in 20 years, is it? It's 20 years since my last one was published. Uh, Corrupting Dr. Nice is 97. Yeah. I know. I didn't. I thought it would be less than that, but uh, (laughs) you know how it is. Uh, you know, I wrote a lot of short stories and, and long stories over the last 20 years, but, uh, and this novel has been in the works for a long time. Uh, people have seen bits of it, uh, and I've read bits of it at, at uh-huh. conventions for quite a few years. Uh, a decade? Probably a decade. I think yeah. it might be a decade. Yeah. 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 And I started it and then I, I stalled out and then, um, I made a vow in 2011 that if I was ever going to finish this book, I needed to not ever write another short story. So I, I, I made myself not write any short stories, which is why I disappeared from the world of science fiction. Uh, and I finished the book in December of 2014. But uh, then I, my agent had, had died, uh, Ralph Hichinanza, may he uh-huh. rest in peace, and mm-hmm. uh, I had to find a new agent. And uh, it was a real humbling experience. I, I discovered that not everyone was, they weren't leaping to <laughs> sign me off. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was that was interesting. And so it took me more than half a year to get an agent and then it took a while to sell the book and then uh, had to rewrite it again and so it's been a long time in the works. Way back when you, um, the story that people are going to recognize that is related to this is the the Stories for Men, which you got a Tiptree Award for. Uh, was this going to be a novel when that story was written, when the earlier, what, four stories? It's really funny because I, I started out uh, wanting to write a novel about this quasi-utopian Society of cousins. Uh-huh. Uh, before I wrote stories for men, and and what I I did this with with corrupting Doctor Nice. I wanted to write a time travel novel, but I I was not sure of the concept. So I wrote uh, a couple of short stories set in 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 the world of that, and mm-hmm. then before I wrote the novel, and so that's what I did here. I wrote those stories knowing I was going to write a novel, uh, and and they came out. Uh, uh, but I never, it's funny, this novel I was going to write originally was very different from what I ended up with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in other words, I didn't really uh, intend them to be uh, necessary uh, prequels to the novel, but it does turn out that um, three of my four main characters in the novel appear in three of those stories. So, so uh, you know, those of you who've read the stories I said in the Society of Cousins, which all appeared in my collection uh the bound plan for financial independence mm-hmm. um, will have a little bit of a head start on some of the things, but I, but I uh, the novel I don't think does, depends on you having read any right. of the stories. But the, but the novel talks about the events of Stories for Men. I mean, in some sense, the precipitating event for the novel happens off screen in Erno being uh, exiled, exiled, exiled. Yeah. Which, which was the end. And the end of that novella was him getting kicked out when he was seventeen years old. And right. now we're starting. Basically, ten years later, right? He's been kicking around uh, the moon uh, as a sort of undocumented uh, alien uh, to uh, uh, these different colonies. So, were you thinking ever? I mean, I can't even remember this, but uh, because this is not your first novel that is connected up with short stories, and so were you ever thinking of stories for men could have been the start of this novel? Uh, no, no, actually, and. and uh, I think actually, remember Ted Chang suggested that Stories of Men should be the first part of the novel, right. and I, mm-hmm. I resisted that strongly. I, I felt that it's a novella, it stands alone, it's not part of a novel. And so, uh, I, 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 I was gonna do a novel, and was gonna have this character, it was gonna follow what happens to him afterwards, but it always was gonna be a different story. Back in the day, we committed Fix Up Itis, we, we uh-huh. wrote a novel together where the stories were designed to fit in together. Right, right. But I think that right. you had a sort of a reaction to that, that you didn't want to see that again in your own work. Yeah, I don't. I don't really, uh, let's put it this way. I have in my novel, Good News from Outer Space, there are three stories in there that appeared separately, but, but I, um, 
I, I to do that, I, I feel that a novel's a different form, and and if you're going to do that, you have to be tricky. And you, I don't I don't like the idea of just sticking the stories end to end and 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 having it be a novel. I think it can be done. I wonder I wonder if science fiction writers are more sensitive about that sort of thing because of the history of the fix up, right? Because of the fact that you had things like. The Foundation Trilogy, which was never a trilogy of novels, or Clifford right. Simak City, which is not really a novel. Right. And, right. Uh, and so, so what do you mean it's not really, so is Forever War a novel? Is the Canticle for Leibowitz a novel? Is, uh, uh, well, more than human. Uh, <laughs> more than human. I think it depends on what happens after the stories are out there. I mean, right. basically, uh, I know the story with More Than Human. He had a novella, right. and Betty Ballantyne made him write other parts of it. Right. So it was. Yeah, I think he wrote the middle novella, and then he wrote a, a, yeah, a previous one and exactly. a later right. one. Oh, right. yeah. So, so, but but in, outside of the science fiction community, I don't think the word "fix up" means anything. Right, right, um, and. And, and, and so maybe you're reacting. I mean, one of the things that interests me about both of your writing is right. that you know the history of the field so well right. that there's things that you want to celebrate, and it seems like maybe things you want to avoid. Right. Um, I, I did a. Uh, I teach at the, the Stone Coast Creative Writing MFA program, and so I did a lecture on the fix-up novel because, and I assigned not a science fiction novel, but uh, a visit from the Goon Squad, ah. which is a. Mm-hmm. Fix-up novel, or is it a short story collection, which is which are related? But she wrote a story. Uh, there was an interesting character in her story that uh, that she wanted to hear write more about. So she wrote a story about him, and there was an interesting story character in the next story. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, she said, "Well, and I already had the story that I already wrote that could fit in here." And so then we have a you know, I guess it won the Pulitzer Prize. It won some big prize, yeah, it and it's a wonderful novel. But it is clearly you know happened in in literary magazines and then came together it was as a whole thing. Winesburg, Ohio. Sure. Okay. So so mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think. That you can write, uh, you know, I don't know if you call them novels or what. Uh, I think the uh, Visit from the Goon Squad is a wonderful book. Again, uh, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't have a moral objection to it. It just didn't seem to be what I, what I wanted to do. I think it's evolved in a different way. I mean, Ursula Le Guin used to use the term "story suite" for a, right. a series of collected stories, and and there are people. Nina Allen does this wonderfully. There's, you can't tell whether it's a story or a novel when you're reading one of her right. sort of collections. And Michael Cunningham in the mainstream is writing. You know, three novels that are sort of interleaved in a way. Um, Kate Wilhelm's Kate, like this yeah. bird sang. You know, this is. But see, this is the thing: is when you talk about a fix-up novel, are you using as a as a term of appropriation or as a descriptor? Right. And so sometimes people say, "Well, it's a fix-up novel," you know, and sometimes you think, "Oh, it's a fix-up novel. That's interesting, like all these mm-hmm. other fix-up novels." And so, but yeah, I, I, I think uh, the term "fix-up" is a, is a demeaning term. Okay, and uh, you know, and John Clue was using it all the time, and, and, and you know, he got a lot of pushback on that. I think Jim Gunn hated it. I, uh, I, I really, you know, I don't like the term. I think it diminishes. It. it makes it seem like you know, you just cobbled together something out of spare parts that you had lying around. And I, I think uh, many, uh, if you call, we call it a braided novel, suddenly it, it, uh-huh. it, it the same right. same text exactly, yeah, right. and suddenly it becomes yeah. a kind of experimental work of of art, and and yeah, and exactly. so. Uh, um, I, I would just like to see the term fix-up be you know, put into the dustbin. Well, but just for clarification, this is not even a fix-up by the traditional no, definition of fix-up. No, no. You're using care. Now, my, my book is, uh, yeah, okay, my book is not a fix-up not a, novel. Not a fix-up, not a it complete in and of itself. It, it has no stories <laughs> from elsewhere stuck into it. It's a complete novel. Right, yeah, sure. And... Uh, Persepolis, you've got, it's basically a tale of two cities. Right, right, yeah. Right. And you're contrasting two sort of semi-utopian communities, both of which have serious problems. Right. I think it's fair to say. Was Persepolis always in your mind as a kind of uh, counterpoint to the Society of Cousins? I did, uh, it, fairly early in the process, I, I had Erno in exile, and I, uh-huh. I had him, I wanted him to go to a place that was much more, uh, uh, what male dominated, uh, but also was much more prosperous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it could have been a kind of U.S. oriented uh, a mm-hmm. colony. You know, an American. But I, but I really wanted uh, to get away from you know outer space, all colonized by Americans. And so, yeah. so uh, I, I know I got very interested in Iran and Iranian culture, and and uh, uh, so I, I, uh, I tried to create this uh, Iranian. Uh, you know, colony, which is the most prosperous and largest colony on the moon, in my uh, uh, 
But, the, but the, you back away from Iranian stereotypes by making this a secular Iranian. Right, right, right. I, I, I also wanted that as well. Uh, you know, if you think about the number of Iranians who are, like, uh, what's that area of Los Angeles called Tarantulas, mm. okay, uh, <laughs> where, where there, there are many, many Iranians who are not, uh, you know, uh, a, a fundamentalist uh, uh, ayatollahs. Uh, it's not a, it's not a, a like the Islam, Islamic Republic. And also, you know, my, my, Contact with Iranians. I'm no expert, but but uh, I know that many Iranians are not really particularly fond of the Islamic Republic. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And, and and so uh, I thought, you know, my uh, my Iranian colony would be uh, uh, Persepolis is a you know a, a kind of utopian idea. Uh, this sort of class Persepolis being you know historically one of the great uh, 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 Iranian uh, cities of, uh-huh. of the past. And also, uh, you know, I bring in the Cyrus Cylinder. They have a Cyrus Cylinder, which currently is residing in the British Museum, uh, uh, as a kind of foundational document uh, of their their colony. Uh, and and you know, it's it's uh, the Cyrus Cylinder uh, is an artifact, you know, from um, uh, the the regime of Cyrus before uh, Christ. And and uh, uh, they you know they're um, Prided themselves on the uh, ecumenical quality. Wow. They yeah. allowed the Jews to live, freed the Jews. Uh, Cyrus freed the Jews from, from the Babylonian. Uh, uh, that's, one, that's not the only Earth artifact that somehow ends up on the moon, which I, I thought was fascinating. There's a Mary Cassatt painting in this. Right. I mean, the most famous Mary Cassatt painting, yeah, I right, guess. Right, yeah. And it's and, and I finally it took me a couple of times to realize, no, that's not a reproduction. That's that's a Mary painting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, which is the inter- other interesting thing because. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, Earth versus Moon in this. Uh, I, I guess no. you know, for decades the Moon as a harsh mistress has been the model right, for Moon right. colony novels, and it's it, there's, it's it's not an American Revolution on the Moon thing at all. No, but um, but um, Earth culture is all over it. Uh, right. Well, and, you know, it seems to me that if colonies, if there are colonies established on the Moon, and I have you know, I think 27 mm-hmm. different colonies. Uh, established by different groups, uh, some nation states, some uh, uh, you know uh, uh, were business ventures, others were scientific research outposts, and others were uh, uh, kind of separatist groups. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, that that it would be uh, that the Earth would be very much in their in their history, and mm-hmm. they would be aware of the Earth, and the Earth certainly would be uh, powerful. The Earth still uh, you know is is going here, although there have been many reverses because of climate difficulties and things like that. I think I have some Earth, some lunar people go for vacation, mm-hmm. and they vacation on Hudson's Bay in uh, in the novel. Let's just throw no, it out. But to me, though, what's interesting about this take on the moon is how little Earth counts. Yeah, right. And right, so, right. so I mean, uh, this is a is as if you know you take the warring states of Europe and and move them to the moon, and so that's all it counts. And we don't care about North America, Asia, or anything uh-huh. like that. Here, it's only the the. Lunar political, the geopolitical uh, right. setup of those colonies and how they interact with each other that counts. Earth is an afterthought. You know, yeah, it's there, but right. they're not I, really yeah. a, a I, important. I, that part. was a pretty, pretty deliberate thing. I, you know, I guess I felt like that that would not be controversial or anything. It just would be, uh, you know, one of the possibilities and maybe a very likely one uh, that you know that, that the Earth would be. Uh, you know, we were, the, all the colonists would have. Well, all right, they've been established for a hundred sure. years. Yeah. Or more. Right. Okay. So they've had a time to to really separate from the earth. But again, there's a sense that uh, again, you're both aware of the history of science fiction. And the moon was a big thing for a long time, and, right, right? And then nobody wrote about the moon for a while. I know it became nothing. And nobody right. was ever written about it at all. Right. And, and suddenly, and, and I read, you know, I read Moon is a Hush Mistress, which is not my favorite Heinlein book. I, many people think it's one of his best books. I don't. Hmm. Uh, but you know this kind of solar system colonization, and and uh, he wrote a lot of stories set on the moon. Oh yeah, and, and uh, uh, you know I I definitely have uh, uh, been influenced by that. Uh, but I and I also did a lot of research on just the practical uh, matter of creating sustainable environments on the moon without having to bring resources from Earth. That's the other thing is that you know water and air from the Earth is is too expensive to do that. Right. So I, I had to. I did a lot of research uh, to a couple of uh, NASA uh, big books from symposia they did about lunar colonization and, and read up a lot of things on that. It was kind of fun to do that. I wanted to make these colonies at least plausible uh, as real. 
So the, 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 the lunar part of it, the lunar environment part of it, really is hard SF. Yeah, but it doesn't read as hard as that because that's not what you're. That's not are. really what. I, it's about the characters and the sociological issues and yeah. uh, and the gender issues and and uh, and yeah, you said about uh, at the beginning that you know they're neither of them they're they're kind of quasi utopian but they have lots of problems right, right. and that's the way I feel about societies is that you know the United States was, was a utopia that has lots of problems right, right. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me that maybe that what obviates the term. Um, Utopia, but I but I feel that uh, you know that that I didn't want to have a, a black or white uh, uh, sense of, of these places that they they uh, would have good things there and they would have bad mm-hmm. things there. Uh, and didn't I also don't think that there's no I'm not a uh, what a, uh, I, I I don't feel that there is it. I'm trying to say. There, there are good things and bad things. Okay, there are yeah. there are judgments to be right. made. Yeah. Uh, there are some ways of doing things that are better than others. Um, that these are are real issues. They're not. Uh, uh, I'm not a, a, a quietist about it. Mm. Um, but but I also felt that you know there there are human beings who are creating these societies and living in them, and they are um, they they like all human beings have have uh, strong and weak qualities. It seems to me that, you know, that when you talk about the uh, utopian, the two utopias, readers of this book will say, well, wait a minute, Persepolis, that's okay. I can, if I look at it a certain way, I can sort of see a utopia. On the, on the other mm-hmm. hand, the Society of Cousins presents as a utopia. And I'm wondering what you think about the arguments within this utopian society, which is that, uh, as, it, as it turns out in the book, the uh, Cousins Utopia is acted on by external forces, right. which which cause it to have trouble. Right. But there's mm-hmm. also an argument within the cousin society that it's doomed anyway because of the way it's set up. And I was wondering if you thought that that in fact, if there had not been any external interventions, that the society of cousins would have succumbed to the pressures of that of its society of its sociological setup. Well, that's a good question. I I, I think uh, that. The Society of Cousins, what's funny, when I wrote those first short stories about it, I got mm-hmm. uh, uh, comments on, especially on stories for men, that talked about how this was a, a tyranny of women over men. Right. And, and I never really saw it as that. Right. I saw it as an alternative that uh, in which men uh, had faced certain injustices. But I didn't want to just have a kind of flip, flipping of, of the patriarchy uh, into the matriarchy. Right. Uh, so I, I, I thought a lot about how it would be organized. Uh, the men who came there were not hauled in slave ships. They were, uh, you know, they, they chose to. They volunteered to go. To go. Yeah. yeah, right. And they chose to uh, sign on to this altered soci- sociological setup. Um, um, so I, I uh, in a way, when I got uh, people saying that, I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll put all of those criticisms of the Society of Cousins into the mouths of the people, all, other people on the moon who don't. Who, uh-huh. who don't like it, okay? And then I'll I'll show you. Indeed, there are injustices and there's there's social problems there. I, my feeling is that they they probably would have would have ameliorated the situation mm-hmm. ultimately. Okay, yeah. they are under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of politics in this book. Uh, um, uh, you know, people outside who feel that the, this this colony is a threat mm-hmm. to them. Uh, I think I made it very clear that that the the threat is exaggerated. Then people misunderstand, uh, um, uh, you know, the the nature of. I remember the discussions about the stories for men uh, among the tip tree people because, <laughs> they, in a way, that was a very risky story to write. And, getting, and but but it seems to me the tip tree judges realized that you weren't just flipping things, uh, and, and that made it a much more complicated consideration of gender, which. I actually was impressed when the, when that won the Tip Tree Award. I was impressed by the Tip Tree Award looking at a story that was this complicated. Yeah, exactly. Well, in fact, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to look at masculinity. And, and I tried to have images of various kinds of images of what men are supposed to be uh-huh. like in all, in all these different colonies and places and different characters. And um, because I think masculinity is uh, is not been studied enough, I think, you know, and, and, uh, but it's funny when I, I wrote this, I had something in the book that I'm sure is going to cause some difficulty for me. Mm-hmm. And that one of the major plot threads is that I have a, a male who has no authority over his son, who basically has a custody battle yeah. with his mother, 
the, uh, the, uh, uh, over the custody of the boy. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is the stalking horse for the, the men's organizations in the United States. Uh, now. United, the, yeah. the, these, uh, these, right. and many of them are, are horribly misogynist. Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. And that was not my intention. Okay. Right. right. But, but the issue of, uh, of, you know, who, who raises children and who, what is the best way to raise children? I, I, I wanted to, you know, raise that there. And also, this guy thinks he's going to be, uh, you know, the, the best father. He's, he's going to be able to, to do a, a good job, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that his, his uh, ex-wife couldn't be. But in, in the event, it turns out that he, he's not, he's not very good at it at all. He's not. No. And, and, uh, uh, and his, his sort of, he has kind of arrogance about, well, you know, they, they keep men from having any influence over their children. And here, uh, here I'm going to, uh, well, one of the things that uh, the characters are, one of the things that changes from the Heinlein tradition to this is that none of the characters in this novel are really that good at what they do. <laughs> Erno, is a, Erno is way over his head when he starts working yeah, for a corporation. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Uh, that's true. I mean, but he is, you know, he is good enough to do it, but, uh, you know, I also think often people are take on things that they... Uh, they, they aren't always able to. Uh, it's it's a novel of overreach, and a lot of people yeah, yeah. are overreaching. They're, mm-hmm. they're confident within a sphere, but they're thrust into a larger sphere, and all of a sudden there are demands that they are not ready to to meet. And so, one of the things though I thought was interesting about this this riskiness of this yeah. is that if you give the elevator speech about this book or about stories for men, if you say, oh well, what a key plot point is as a father trying to adopt his son with no power in the society, you know, it sounds like, oh, well, that's, that social justice warriors will be, you know, this, this is the kind of, exactly. in our political climate. And what's, what's, what's important about this book is, and the story is, you can't really understand what this book or story is about by talking about it. You can only read it because if you just hear about it, it could rub you the wrong way. But I think it gives a fair, uh, exposure of both sides, both arguments, and and does not make up its mind necessarily that one is the best way or the other. It's sort of all there for you to evaluate and interrogate. But the it's, it's one of those elevator pitches where somebody else is going to be in the back of the elevator that absolutely goes for your throat because yeah. they just heard. Uh, and it's happened, you know. Mm-hmm. Some people who have heard parts of this or have read parts. Well, of I this. actually brought a chapter of this to Sycamore Hill, and I got some strong pushback on uh, the, this custody issue. Uh-huh. And uh, so that, w- but it was based on one chapter. Uh, yeah, out right. of a longer narrative, right. and I think it, it gave a misleading impression. Right. Um, it, it, you know, one of the things I also wanted to do was to sh- suggest how this society would be. I mean, it, it's run by women. Women have uh, power that is, in some ways, uh, a result of other uh, people, women, uh, uh, admiring them. Okay, and and um, you know, there are elections, and and there's a board of matrons that runs the place, but there's also a sense in which power is uh, uh, goes to those people for various reasons who are able to to uh, get other people to sign on all right and and uh, I was thinking a lot about how how uh, women uh, network okay yeah. and and uh, uh, I have you know two older women characters who are uh, I meant it to be poles uh, uh, who are sort of fighting over the soul of this other woman character who who's young and 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 rebellious. Yeah, and uh, uh, um, she's drawn to one who's very charismatic and and politically savvy and and wants to change the society for the better. She's basically on on term in terms of political platform. She very much likes this woman better than the other woman who's sort of the conservative matron that represents the status quo. Right. But my intention was, in the end of the book, that in fact that's the better, better, better role model mm-hmm. for her. Uh, but but she, you're right. She's young and rebellious. She's kind of a Banksy-like video artist who puts yeah, up. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, Good right. call. Yeah. Uh, and 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 um, so so within each society, there are critics of that society. Not neither one is presented. Uh, Sure. That's particularly sympathetic. Right. There's another question, just from a science fiction point of view, that I don't know if this is part of the movement or not. But I've noticed in the last several years, the, one of the reasons the moon is coming back, because there are Ian McDonald's novels there, uh, but there's also the solar system. It's like drawing back from the space opera, the grand intergalactic thing. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you start getting Paul McCauley's things about the, the the outer colonies have kind of replaced the moon to some right. extent. Uh, 
and, and Stan Robinson is writing a novel yeah, saying yeah, the sure. generation starships aren't going to work. Right. Are, are we pulling back to more achievable futures in science fiction? Well, that's a that's interesting. I, you know, I don't, guess I haven't really written much in the way of you know star-spanning galactic adventure, uh-huh. uh, interstellar travel, and all that, and uh, colony planets and other around other star systems. It seems to me that what I was trying to do here was to sort of write in the Stan Robinson mode that of a, of a more realizable, mm-hmm. uh, plausible future. Uh, you know, where we don't have faster than light travel. I, I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a skeptic about that. And I don't so, even know. How far uh, out are we in your world? Are we in the asteroid belt? I know we're on Mars. Um, you're on yeah. Mars. Um, you know, I actually, I think there there are some colonies on Europa, places like that. But, yeah. but there's not. Uh, yeah. It's not. You know, it's not like a Stan Robinson universe where they have huge cities on Titan and, and right. people travel from Mercury to. You know, they're terraforming Venus and all this other stuff. It's 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 not that far along yet. No disrespect to my Star Wars fans, friends who are fans and galaxy spanning. But this is grown up science fiction of the solar system. I mean, if we're going I mean, to have a yeah. spaceship based uh, future. And we're only going to go as far as we can go. And, you know, unless some magical thing happens and we can go faster than the speed of light, a wormhole will drop into our laps and we're going to right. be shooting through that. Then, then this is the, this is the kind of science fiction that, you know, we should have been, char- we were charged to write back in the day when we started, when John and I right. started yeah. writing. You know? And, you know, frankly, was- frankly, you know, I've paid attention to this guy's writing about, uh, uh, and others, about the, the just the physiological difficulties of human beings in space. Yeah. It's, uh-huh. it's not, not an environment that yeah. the human body works in very well. Mm-hmm. And my, I don't really go into it very much, but it's my intention that pretty much anyone who lives on the moon has been genetically altered already to deal with the fact they're in one-sixth gravity. Otherwise, right. their bones and their, their circulatory systems, all this would be really messed up. Right. Uh, right. Uh, like Low G is really bad for human beings. And, sure. and you're exiled for life after a certain amount of time. You can't come back to Earth and right. function. Right. 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 Now, I have sort of like ma- ma- magic genetic alterations where you can... You, you can uh, uh, um, you know, you can still live to be 120 years old, sure. uh, uh, but you are, you know, and you're you're fit, you're phys- physically look like a human being, but you're not you're not a, exactly uh, like an Earth human being. One of the things I admire about this book is the plotting. I mean, it's it, there's a there's a secret embedded in this story that slowly unfolds mm-hmm. and shows more and more and more of. Uh, explains more and more phenomenon in the story until at the very end you realize, oh my gosh, this is this is a huge idea which has been covered up, and so without yeah. going into too much of it, it's right. like uh, it's it's it, it has interesting plot ripples throughout that, that goes on and on and yeah, on. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time dropping crumbs, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, very few crumbs at the beginning, and then more as it, it goes along. Actually, when I was writing the book. I have like probably I don't see there are four or five major plot lines. I've got four major characters here: two men and two women, yep. and and uh, then many subsidiary characters that I spend some some time with. And so, uh, you know, I really was juggling a lot of different plot lines there. Well, there, there one one plot line which is another allusion to earlier science fiction, which I found fascinating, was you have a, a an investigator report, kind of a I saw him as a kind of. Geraldo Rivera dog. Uh, yeah, that's a good analogy. I thought Anderson Cooper myself, but he's, okay. he's a little bit more Geraldo than Anderson. Yeah, probably. you're right. Yeah. And he's and he's and his name's Sirius, which is pretty clearly yeah. uh, you know uh, Stapleton. But one of the things that happens in his storyline is you realize. An uplifted dog is not a human. Right. It's an alien mind. Right. Uh, and yeah. he, he he really becomes alien at the end of it. That's a little point. backhanded critique of all the science fiction stories where they, they make animals uh, have human intelligence, and then they're just like people, right. or they're a dog or an ape or something. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's my feeling that that's not the way it would be at all. And yeah. uh, I, I have a, a, a good friend, uh, one of my colleagues at NC State, named Cat Warren, who uh, wrote a, a wonderful book called What the Dog Knows. She has uh, she has a, a raised uh, dogs that are cadaver dogs oh. uh, that, that, you know, are used by the police oh, to, yeah. s- to spot, you know, mm-hmm. dead bodies mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and so this book is a wonderful uh, analysis or just discovery or thought about what dogs are and how they're different from us and how they think mm-hmm. different from us. So it was a real influence on me. Somebody a couple of years ago, I can't remember, pointed this out, that one of the best and earliest stories about alien intelligence was Virginia Woolf's Flush, 
which is her biography of her dog. Huh. Uh, and a lot of it is, is imagining what the dog is thinking. Huh. It's, it's, it's a strange, strange book as she, and it's, you know, and we know now that Virginia Woolf kind of liked science fiction in a weird way. Yeah, she right. liked stable. Yeah. And it, when I, when I, I went back and looked at Flush, I have a copy of it, and I thought, yeah, dogs, Intelligent dogs aren't people. They're still dogs. Right. And we don't know what they're thinking. Right. Well, and, and actually, Stapleton's book, Serious, which is a wonderful book, mm-hmm. maybe, I, might, in some ways, might be the best characterized book that he wrote. Uh, uh, it actually has characters yeah, in it. Has characters <laughs> in it, right. Yeah. Uh, um, is, uh, you know, it's really good, actually, at, at trying, getting to the point that for Serious to, to be, you know, a genius, but also uh-huh. a dog, is, is in some ways a torment. Right. Yeah, and the same thing was in Odd John with his you know, his human genius book. Right, so right. He, the, the idea that it, that alien intelligence is not just another variation of the way we think, but a completely you know, different. But at the same time, my dog Sirius is like you know lunarly famous. Okay, he's on TV all the time. He's got his own uh, TV show. Yeah, yeah. You know, he actually is uh, involved in politics. He you know uh, uh, I had a lot of fun with. Uh, with some of the, the it's raw it's raw stuff. Well, there's a lot really of good, yeah, it, it, which, is, which is interesting to me because it disguises all sorts of things about that alienness, and so yeah, yeah. At first, you think he's sort of a figure of fun, or yeah, yeah. Or, or just a comic interlude as, as, until the story goes on. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But um, you you were mentioning Jim's novel, and I want to, which I have not seen yet, and I can't see it. Because I can only hear it. You can't. Well, you can't hear it until I just got email today. Oh, okay. The release date is July 11th, uh, and uh, they are close to doing a narrator. Uh, so this is a, a book of mine, which is, goes back to our earlier discussion of fix-up novels, which uh-huh. is a novel which includes several stories which I published in Asimov's, and uh, and uh, maybe 40% of it previously published and 60% um, new material. Uh-huh. Um, but as I wrote these stories, I had, had sort of two of the stories. One one starts five minutes after the end of the other, and so this is a kind of uh, designed fix-up novel. Although I have to say that when I when I originally wrote one of the stories, which was called Going Deep, which was well received, some best of the year nods and some uh-huh. some nominations, I hadn't actually thought that it was going to be more. There was more to say, but then. A year or so later, I wrote a sequel to that, which was also very well received. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, these two stories wanted to expand. So this is a story of a, a young woman who is a clone of her spaceship explorer, a starship explorer mom, mm-hmm. who has been away. She's never met her mom. She was, uh, and, and her mom and she, uh, in order to be crew on a starship, are hibernators. So they can uh-huh. put themselves, well, they, they need, uh, technology to hibernate, and so when they sleep, they'll wake up and they'll be wherever they're going in another galaxy or another star. And mom comes home and tells her, "Well, we found a place to go, so we're going." And she's a teenager and has uh-huh. no intention of going with mom, and so she sort of sabotages the whole thing by hibernating, and uh-huh. so um, and sort of misses a, a, a window for going off into space. So, uh, uh, but ultimately, what I was interested in is this notion in this book about actually going into space and founding colonies in space and the mm-hmm. the economy. Uh, well, how the Earth economy of uh, of many planets, many societies in the solar system could afford to send a starship to another uh, to another galaxy, to another star, because the huge drain on the resources of of that economy to send you know the most precious propulsion ma- uh, material, which is antimatter, right. plus all the dollars it took to to design the spaceship. What happens when there are needs, as we often hear in, 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 you know, in our own space, of our own politics, about NASA? Well, why should we send someone to Mars? I mean, once again, we're hearing this from Trump and say, well, we'll put Mars on the menu for NASA. Well, why should we go to Mars? Because we have problems here. That's a huge expenditure of money. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of extrapolated that sort of argument into the future. But uh, you didn't tell us the title yet. Okay. The title is Mother Go. And so it will be coming out, as I said, in July from um, Audible. So it's a, it's oh. a weird thing. And, uh-huh. and it will be only in audio be version. only available as an audiobook. So they decided to take a gamble. Uh-huh. And I decided to take a gamble for this kind of publishing because mostly when a book comes out, I don't know if John's book is coming mm-hmm. out, but 
in this way, but mostly the print and audible and audio version come out more or less simultaneously. Yeah. So some people they know, some people want to listen to books, and some people want to read books. Well, in this case, if you want to want to read the book, you're going to have to listen to it for at least for six months. That's the, there's a blackout for a print publication. As I mentioned to you both earlier, I think that happened with the new translation of Solaris, of Stanislaw Lem was only an audio book for a right. long time. And I, I I don't know how big the audio book audience is. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because of you know as several years ago, everyone was saying, oh, ebooks that that's the fastest growing part of publishing. Uh-huh. Well, ebooks have grown to their niche and have not actually been expanding largely. They're sort of holding that percentage. And now the largest, the fastest growing segment of publishing is audiobooks. I gather them because I did this series of lectures and everybody's listening to it. Nobody's looking at it, uh, which <laughs> is fine. I mean, I, I want to uh, deal with that too much. But you mentioned something about working out the economics of space travel. And that's one of the things where I wonder if science fiction over the last 30 years, let's say, has begun to respond to some of the criticisms coming from, sometimes from people who know the field, sometimes people like Frederick Jameson will talk about the fact that if you look at earlier science fiction epics, maybe not Heinlein, but certainly Clark and others, right. there's no economics. Nobody knows who pays for this sure, stuff. Exactly. Nobody understands how the society right, works. Right, right. And so if you think about, you know, as people say, well, you know, the Europeans colonized the Americas, so... But the kind of expenditure that the crown had to expend to send a ship or three ships or five ships yeah. is, as a part of the gross national product, is minuscule to the amount of money that, you know, you'd have to, to spend yeah. in order to send a, uh, a starship. Yeah, it was a lot easier to, to uh, you know, it's, a, it's North America was a friendlier environment yeah, you know, yeah, than yeah. the moon is. Okay? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, actually, I, I was using... Uh, you know, the colonization, colonization of North America by Europeans is a little bit of a, of a, a model in the sense that we had thing, people who were separatist groups like the, like the you know, the Plymouth uh-huh. Plantation or the Shakers or, or uh, uh, Quakers who, who, who came to try to establish uh, alternative ways of living. Um, and so that, that is some of the, the, that was the impulse. Well, my, my, uh, you know, Society of Cousins started in California. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then they got burned out of California and, and tried the moon. Uh, that may not be very realistic, but that's what, what my history is. But, but this is, this is like, we're, we're still suffering for the sin of Heinlein, who is, you know, having a guy mm-hmm. build a starship or a spaceship in his backyard. And, or some jalopy right. guy is going to like take D.D. Harriman to the moon, you know, at, at right. the used spaceship right. lot. You know, the thing of it is, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations about the Martian. Uh-huh. So if you figure how much it costs to rescue the guy in the Martian, if you just sort of extrapolate from what it costs to do a, uh, a space shuttle launch, plus the cost of, of the satellite which goes awry there, right. the costs there are in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And so... That people say, okay, we should we should save uh, the guy because he's up there, and then you look at the amount of money it's going to cost, and when you look at the amount of money it's going to cost to man or to to fill a crew mm-hmm. of colonists yeah. to go a long way in the most advanced technology, and then you send that billion dollar, hundred to billion dollar thing out of the economy, it's like burning dollars. It's not just Heinlein who started that, though. I mean, Clark did the same right. thing. That, you know, everything is a technical problem, and if we can solve the technical problem, we don't worry about the economic problems. One of the, um, one of my favorite endings to a science fiction movie and uh, was in the ending of THX 1138, mm. where they're chasing, I, mean, I don't know whether it was the short one or the long, but they're chasing, uh, who was Robert Duvall? Yeah, uh, and and he's trying to get out of, and he's about to climb out, and the robots are coming to get him, and finally somebody says, "You're over budget," and that ends the chase. <laughs> he gets away because they they maxed out their budget yeah, on they, they, catching they, him. They don't have enough money to catch him. Right? right. Yeah. Well, what I was, point I was trying to make about the Shakers and Quakers and things like that is that they weren't there for economic reasons. Yeah. So yeah. that 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 to me is my my way out. Right. Okay, is that they're not there to make money. Right. Okay, uh, when they set up the, econ- the the society, they want to make it sustainable right. and yeah. self-contained. And, uh, you know, they end up having uh, uh, economic uh, uh, relationships with the other colonies right. uh, over mostly knowledge. 
not so much materials. But, uh, but that, um, you know, so there is an economy going on yeah. here. And there's like things like ice and, and oxygen and, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of materials that, that would be necessary to maintain these colonies. But, um, but in other words, it's not an economically feasible proposition for a bunch of, these my my cousins to go mm-hmm. there. It's not to be right. you know they're gonna basically they're burning a lot of money to go there and establish this colony, but they're doing it mostly to try to get away from other people. Sure, exactly, and and uh, not have to mess with uh, uh, the fact that a lot of people aren't going to like them. But unfortunately, now we're eighty years into their establishment or or, or ninety years, and and there are people on the moon now who are are not crazy about them. Uh, with them, so I think it's a, you know one of the things that that was never when we when John and I mm-hmm. broke into the field, no one would ever said follow the money. The economy, the economics of science uh-huh. fiction were not something that mm-hmm. they were. You know, if you could wave your hands and have a star drive, then you can wave your hands and have the economy that is that supports the star drive. Yeah. yeah, right, right. But I mean, I think one of the things that has happened as we have starting to realize more and more how how dependent our economy is on determining the life that we lead, I think that more and more science fiction writers are saying, well, I have to figure out how do they pay for this stuff. When I teach yeah. when I teach science fiction writers in my MFA program, the key part of world building is who's paying for it. And how how not only in science fiction, but how does the king levy, you know, money to to wage oh, war? I'm sorry, this is my pet piece about fantasy. Oh, okay, I was going to say, oh, no, Lord of the Rings no is going to come up here. There's no economics in, in right. fantasy fiction, right. and I'll right. just stop right there. Yeah, 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 we know, we know, yeah. But do you think both of you are, uh, because I, I want to talk a little bit about the anthologies, which I guess you're not doing anymore. Uh, well, we haven't decided not to, but we haven't. Thought... I, I just want to write some more books. <laughs> well, I mean, you should write more books rather than writing criticism. As uh, I'm trying to get people to write critical books for a series I'm editing, and as as my colleague Jonathan cheerfully points out, he will pay one of you guys more for a short story than I will for a whole academic. Thank you, book. Jonathan. I'm working uh, on that story. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you guys were the last generation of writers to kind of come in? With the idea that you'd sell stories to Asimov's and make a career with short stories, because it seems to me younger writers aren't thinking that way anymore. Right. I, I certainly we were thinking we're the last generation that actually the, the actual physical magazines were yeah, were, right. were the what we aspired to, and uh, and so yeah, I, mean, I didn't know that I was never going to make a living from short stories. I knew that wasn't happening, yeah. but I did uh, want to make a reputation from short stories, and it worked pretty well. Right. Okay. Um, uh, I think also I feel like one of the last of the dinosaurs in that regard. Um, it's funny with the anthologies we did. To me, my 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 uh, uh, role model for that was like Damon Knight, right? Uh-huh. Okay, or or Groff Conklin, who did a bunch of. I grew up reading these anthologies in the fifties and sixties, yeah, and and uh, I felt like that you know this was an opportunity to gather stories that people didn't know or didn't remember or, or uh-huh. wouldn't ever put them in these contexts and 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 uh, you know bring them to new readers. Well, one of the things is that one of the, what we were setting out to do for some of the early ones is talk about emergent or existing subgenres that hadn't been ad- adequately you know documented. Yeah. And so we documented two or three of them. Uh, but, you know, th- you only get a couple of new interesting subgenres a generation, and I- I'm not sure that there are that many to talk about. Some people came after us, wrote about anthologies of the new weird or, uh-huh. or steampunk, which are great, but we weren't ready for that, and, and other people did it better, so what are we going to talk about? Then we could do a regular anthology sort of, but then what is the theme? I mean, what's this? Well, I, is it, okay, you take something like the secret history of science fiction. Yeah, you're, talking sure. about, you're talking about a kind of dialogue between science fiction and the mainstream. Now, right. that's, that's been going on since sure, there's been forever. science fiction, yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed to something like steampunk or new weird, which seems to be a moment in time. Right. Uh, and now you've got 700 different punks. Uh, right. I mean, the, other, the other thing I would say is that, uh, given who we are in our age and our experience, is that I'm not sure I could Put together an anthology of, of you know the current generation of writers uh, that would would bear uh, inspection. Okay, and so that that to me is a uh, you know uh, yeah so uh, because that someone else needs to do that. Our anthologies were not entirely, but for the most part, based on our own our, reading. Our generation. Well, okay, yeah, and that was my next question because both of you teach writers and both of you are, are, are aware of what younger people are coming into the field, and I'm I'm fascinated by this myself because yeah, I'll sure. talk to. When I talk to some younger writers, um, 
I'm amazed at how much they've read on their own. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I was talking to Lily Yu a year or two ago, and she was a big George McDonald fan when she was a kid. Yeah. How does somebody that age even know that George McDonald right. existed? Exactly. It's good to know, uh, actually, that, that they do. But, but a lot of them are. A lot of them are very sophisticated, and others... Um, think that science fiction, well, there was once a generation that thought that science fiction began with Bill Dick. Right. And now, and then there's a generation that thought it began with Bill Gibson. Bill Gibson, yeah. <laughs> and so, what, the, your students, what do they read when they start coming into your classes? What do they know about the field, about the history of the field? Well, I say, you know, I'm in the MFA program and I see reasonable number of people who want to write genre fiction, but... Mm -hmm. Number who want to write science fiction, slow, vanishingly small. Right. Really, okay. They want to write substream fiction. Okay. okay. They want to write fantasy of various sorts. They right. want to write horror. But I don't see a lot of science fiction there. And if it is science fiction, it's absolutely not hard science fiction. Yeah. You know. So I think in some ways that's a. You know, I wonder what the the future of science fiction is. Our mutual. Uh, friend Stan Robinson is still a strong influence, I think, for those who are writing science uh -huh. fiction. And so there, anybody who's writing science fiction now at least has a glancing knowledge of his Morris trilogy or 2312 or some of these other things, mm -hmm. the, uh, the weather uh, trilogy. Um, but, and Connie Willis. Now, Connie Willis okay. is not a hard science fiction writer, but she has enough science fiction from time to time. But, uh, I, I, I'm looking at uh, applications for my MFA program and I'm seeing something that, that John and I used to do, which is sort of a science uh, idea as a metaphor. So you sort of talk about the singularity or quantum me mechanics, and there's a there's stuff that says, okay, this is what this is what this means, and then there's uh, passages of of more or less realistic fiction that sort of illustrate, you know, how that could be worked out in real life. I mean, Connie Willis did the, the, the Schrodinger, or no, the That's kind of stuff. And I mean, I wrote one called the Solstice, which was not exactly like that, but it was about the history of Stonehenge and how that reflected across the relationship of, of a mother, a father and a daughter. And so I think that's one of the things I've seen before is like people are more interested in putting science. I think mainstream or literary fiction people are more interested in using science ideas to inform some of their realistic fiction. Or misinform it. I mean, oh, yeah, for, sure. decades ago, I mean, for decades people have been using... Once mainstream writers discovered the indeterminacy principle, right. it was like hopeless. I, I mean, it's like, Can't you can't... <laughs> exactly. And I think Thomas Pynchon wrote a story called Entropy before anybody else was picking that up. In, Right, in, right. In the 60s. right. So just about a, a crazy party. But but one of the things that the, I, I don't have any objection to using science ideas as literary metaphors. That's yeah. not science fiction. Though. Yeah. What I do object to, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, is the idea which has been going around for decades of science fiction is literalization of metaphor. That bothers me, uh, and it bothers and, and and Chip Delaney has made this point. Le Guin has made this point. Uh, the examples that they give she turned on her right side, something like that, right. are never taken from actual fiction. Right. Try to find passages in science fiction which are literalized metaphors, and they're very vanishingly hard I, to find. I, right. I, I, you know, I wrote an undergraduate honors thesis on Sam Delaney, so I'm a huge fan. Okay. But I completely disagree with him about that from the beginning. <laughs> right? The idea of, the, of uh, you know, the, the science fiction at the sentence level as being... Yeah. Uh, uh, it just strikes me as as a kind of forced argument, and not really uh, what you just said. Is that that it doesn't seem to me to arise out of real examples. Uh, um, you know, you might as well say you might say, okay, well, yeah, you know, Delaney talks about if you educate people in order to read science right, fiction. Right, and there's, there's something to that, but right. you could easily say, well, you have to educate people to read historical fiction because it's said, in, you know, in 1300 in in, mm -hmm. uh, in China, and you know, uh, they don't know anything about the culture, and and the, and and uh, uh, in other words, I think he makes too much of the difference. Uh, it seems to me that that uh, you know people read historical fiction all the time, and they don't right. end up having to you know uh, open the first page and see that someone is you know uh, 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 has a, has a, a different way of uh, you know getting their food, and they have to throw the book across the room. I can't read this. I don't understand it. Right. I, I don't get my food like that. There are no supermarkets. Okay. Right. It was interesting to talk to uh, Nicola Griffith about Hild. Uh, which was a very well-researched historical novel, but she said she couldn't have written it without having learned techniques of science fiction writing. Right. Because you're creating not only a completely alien environment for the reader, but an environment about which so little is known 
that it's essentially a, a secondary world. It's sure. an invented world. Right. And you have to, and she said learning how to write science fiction taught her how to learn, uh, how to write historical fiction in the way. And Cecilia Holland turns out to be a big science fiction uh, well, and Stan, Stan talks about this as science fiction is a form of historical fiction. Sure. Yeah. to turn the other way. Well, and then, and then somebody uh, was talking, Stan's novel Shaman uh, is a good example of something where if you go back far enough in historical fiction, it has to become science fiction because what you're based on is not any historical documentation but anthropological and geological sure. evidence. Sure. You're extrapolating yeah. exactly. the past. You're extrapolating the past. And right. the right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, actually, it was my favorite book of it. Example of that is The Inheritors by William Golding, which is about the conflict right. between Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal. But, but Golding yeah. didn't bother to do the research that, yeah. that Stan did. I mean, Stan right. had a oh, very... Yeah. Yeah, right. so, oh, sure. Uh, there, there, there's a fascinating book uh, a few years ago by Nick Ruddick, uh, which is a history of prehistoric fiction uh, as, a, as a separate genre. But she, Nick came out of the science fiction tradition, so he knew that things like... Uh, before Adam, going back to Jack London and that sort of thing, were all imaginatively science fiction works, even though sure. they weren't received by that. Exactly. It's funny, come around this, you know, uh, I, I, one of the impetuses for writing um, The Moon and the Other also for me was uh, anthropological studies of the great apes and the different mm -hmm. uh, uh, soci social systems that they have, uh, basically chimpanzees versus bonobos. And uh, I consciously model the Society of Cousins on the, the way that bonobos are structured, their mm. society of structures, where women dominate. Uh, men are, are there, males are there, but uh, and and uh, but they but they're they the males they don't have the kind of pure, pyramidical uh, hierarchical structure with the alpha male at the top and the other males uh, where the where the chimpanzees will have a situation where the alpha male, for instance, uh, performs infanticide on on uh -huh. uh, uh, on babies because uh, uh, in order to make sure that all the, all the children offspring are his uh, uh but bonobos don't do that and it's hmm. because the the females have a kind of a, a what it's sort of a well one thing is they have a lot of sex okay oh, yeah. uh, uh, and that sex is is the common coin of bonobo social interaction okay and and also uh um you know, uh females have uh, band together in a way that prevents males, even though they might be physically stronger, uh, from from dominating. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and so that that was really, uh, in some ways, the model for for at least the initial model for for how I was creating this society. Uh, uh, basically, saying that you know we're primates, we're as closely related to bonobos as we are to chimps. What about a society that's organized uh, along the bonobo uh, mm -hmm. uh, model? Mm -hmm. So. And if you know the uh, the Musuo, they're a, uh, a Tibetan uh, Chinese uh, oh, right. Tibetan, guys, Tibetan yeah. society that actually sort of resembles right. uh, a bonobo oh. organization. Okay, uh, so I, I did a lot of this anthropological re reading in order to create a science fiction uh, uh, society, or to create a, a human society that follows some kind of a anthropological principles, I suppose. Right, right. And, and you know, with, on the on the supposition that this would not be forcing humans to be something that they're not, okay? Uh, often mm -hmm. the problem with utopias is that uh, they suppose that human nature has to alter right. so that people behave in ways that human beings haven't behaved. And, Did you I, get, and I, I didn't want to do that. To go back to the Society of Friends, because there were... Um, some early feminist utopias around the turn of the century. Herland, yeah. That uh, not not Herland. There's one that's even worse than that. <laughs> they're, 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 I'm trying to remember her name now, but she, it's um, Amazonia, the New Amazonia, uh -huh. uh, and it can't, And they they have a feminist society that practices infanticide. It it it, 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 it wow. it's sort of it's just it's it's eugenic. It's yeah. uh, it's I mean it's all turn of the century stuff. And to some extent, you can't blame this particular writer so, yeah. uh, for doing it. But I wonder if there's a, a, a sense that you got you, you get pushed back like that that any kind of utopian scheme is only a utopia for some, right? Um, such as I don't know our president's budget. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I suppose that's you know that is a, a you know that's certainly a, a criticism that's made about utopian societies. And I and I don't I don't believe that we could create a society there would be where there would be no injustice. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we could have less injustice than we have, right. and and 
Um, you know, I think it's actually incumbent upon us to try to imagine a better way for the future to be, because it seems to me in our current state, uh, in the United States anyway, no one seems to be able to imagine anything but complete disaster and, right. and dystopia yeah. for the future. If you think about the future, it's always a, a you know, a complete collapse of society, uh, roving bands mm-hmm. of people with rifles right. killing each other or zombies that are eating yeah. each right. people. Or there, there's a sense in which there's no way we can... Someone said that it's easier us for us to imagine the end of society than it is for us to imagine the end of capitalism. Uh, and uh end of the human race is more likely than the end of capitalism. Right. And, and, you know, I have to I don't feel know. that that's not the case, all right? Um, I'm at, my, my, my sense is that dystopian fiction or post-apocalyptic fiction or nuclear war fiction, whichever, they just make better stories than utopias. There's more stuff to do. Right. You're, you're living in a frontier. If civilization has been destroyed, you're back in... A Western environment where the natural aristocracy works its way, and in a utopia, you just what do you do? What do you have right, to do? No, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that. But right. I guess what I'm saying is, I uh, trying to imagine ways in which things could be better, and let, you know, I think that's. I'm not saying uh, perfect. Okay, I'm saying uh, better. Right. All right. So, so. Uh, 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 if you want to call that utopia, I guess you could call that. But I think utopia has gotten a bad name. We should bring Stan in on this one, okay? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the idea says, oh, utopias are boring. Well, you know, uh, I, I understand, you know, if you've got your, your, you know, your rifle and your backpack and you're out there, you know, uh, struggling to survive, that that makes a good story. But, um, you know, trying to find a way in which people can resolve their their political differences and their economic differences without resorting to killing is, uh, uh, uh there are a lot of stories to be had. It's a hard question though. I mean, you, you, well, you, it's you, a lot, it's not less fun. Okay. It's less yeah. fun. I mean, if you, if you get somebody, you, you may get, you may have got feedback like this already, but somebody might say, well, all you need to do on your moon is to take the best qualities of Persepolis and the best qualities of society right. of presence. And it's not going to work. Right. I just think that they're no. different ideas of utopia. I have a theory also, which is completely unsupported by any evidence, except, <laughs> except my own teaching, that people think of utopian in personal terms and they think of dystopia in social terms. Right. And I, I used to do this exercise in class, and it worked th- several years, where at the beginning of class I'd ask the students to simply list the future events of their life with mm-hmm. dates. And when are you going yeah. to get married? When are you going to right. uh, get... And, and they would do that. And then I'd collect all these papers, and three weeks later or something, when we were talking about a completely different topic, and they would have forgotten this assignment, I would ask them to list major events in world history over the next 50 years with right. dates. Right. And then I put the two lists together. Huh. And you have, a, you have a kid retiring to Florida 20 years after Florida has been underwater. <laughs> you, know, have, you have a kid getting married after a nuclear apocalypse right. is destroyed. Yeah. They, they have no, there was no, no, no connection between contact. the personal yeah. future and the yeah. social future. Yeah. But I mean, this is the thing. I think I'd like to take the notion of utopia off the table. And so, I mean, if you want to say, okay, on one end of the mm-hmm. spectrum is utopia, and one end of the spectrum is utter hell. Uh, so, most of the futures we want to imagine are someplace on that spectrum. We'd like to push them toward the mm-hmm. utopia, but there's no way to get there. I mean, if we th- have we got utopias on the earth now? No. But have we got dystopias? Well, I would argue that the United States is in a way is a dystopia. Is, mm. is the United States more dystopian than communist China? Is it more dystopian than mm-hmm. the, the Russia? Is it more dystopian than some of the, than, than Egypt? And so, yes, there are some, there are some problems in lots of our cultures here, but are people miserable? Some people in those countries are not miserable. So I guess what I would like to argue is looking at the, uh, the trending, uh, the trends of our own world, it's enough to say, to argue there's survival with uh, with some kind of intellectual freedom, uh, with some kind of uh, ability to take care of uh-huh. everybody, a socialist state. Maybe it's a low-level socialist state. Maybe it's like China. Maybe a lot of people are very poor, but there's nobody maybe starving. Maybe it's like Norway. Oh, okay. maybe it's Norway. Right. Yeah. Or okay. Switzerland, right? I mean, I'm saying that, that you know, um, Stan says this in his book, Pacific Edge, that there have always been what he calls pocket utopias. Sure. Where, where in a small area, over a small period of time, yeah. for maybe a restricted right. period group of people, you have... Uh, uh, you know, it's not perfect, but but people are get enough to eat. 
you know, they're not being killed. Right. There, you know, there's some uh, uh, equality of, of uh, uh, opportunity and and uh, uh, freedom of speech and things like that. And so, uh, you know, whether that can be scaled up, um, you know, there are a lot of reasons. Well, why an, another way of looking up. at that, which is po- partly pocket pockets of of, of society, is what. Uh, well, both Le Guin and Delaney called heterotopias for a while. Right. And to some extent, actually, now that I think about it, the moon and the other has some echoes of Anaris and, and Eros from the dispossessed, where you have two contrasting societies, yeah, one right. very that capitalistic was, and one very... The, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it was in my mind when I was writing the book that that, that book was yeah. sort of there. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> to, but, to bounce off. If I recall correctly, she subtitled that an ambiguous utopia. Yeah, right? she did. And then Delaney came out with Triton, which she subtitled an ambiguous heterotopia. Yeah. And there was a lot of discussion. I never quite figured out what heterotopia is, except that you can't have a monolithic society that is all the way you want it. Right. It's, uh, it, and so you have to have these compromises. Sure. And so right. that kind of social tension. This is we we, we could we could go on to Wait, another uh, hour and just solve the problem. Yeah, really? Okay, let's go. Oh, no. <laughs> But I, I wish uh, the no. problem were that easily solved. I yes. mean, uh, 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 one of the things that uh, I did with the book, I thought was, I wanted to just think about things, and I didn't really have. Uh, I had some strong opinions about some things being better than others, uh, but I, I also wanted to just set it up and see, you know, all right, set it up. These are why they built it. This is what they thought was the virtues of the mm-hmm. society. Where are the problems? Okay, uh, who's hurt by it? Um, you know, where, where are the good things? I mean, you know, if you think men are oppressed in society of cousins, well, in many ways they are better off than we are. Uh, there's a, there's an attractive part to it. There's a sense of being, I guess, coddled. Well, uh, well, there's that, I suppose, you know, uh, although, um, you know, they're also encouraged to pursue whatever career they want and, and, and do real work. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a, I have that kind of, uh, Bookish and un—he's like a, a you know a gamma male. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's his name? Lemmy Odielson, the, the designer of designer environments right, and, yeah. and a tree nut. Okay, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, you know he's not a leader of men. Okay, mm-hmm. I made deliberately wanted to make him. He's not handsome. He's not charismatic. He, you know he he can't. He doesn't. He walks into the room and people just ignore him. But. He, he's living, uh, uh, you know, he's doing important work, more important than all these charismatic guys are doing, and, and he's changing the world. Which is, right? yeah, and it's one of the strengths of the novel as a novel, as a character novel, uh, and it, I think it has to go back to the Tipperary War, that none, all the characters, male and female and, and, Intersex to some extent. Right. You've got to, the trans characters have problems in the sure. society. They, they are not treated well. No. Right. They're not treated well. So everybody is along a spectrum of gender. So you're right. not you're not making a, a kind of binary feminist utopia versus capitalist utopia thing out of it because in Persepolis there are various iterations of gender as well, and that seems to me to be one thing that science fiction has probably learned in the last twenty years, and one of the things that's probably Benefited all of us from the diversification of voices that we receive sure. these days. Well, it's true. I think a lot of I think about the fifties and forties science fiction novels I read. They would have often a kind of totalizing and simplified uh-huh. society. Okay, right. and you know, like the Space Merchants, which is a wonderful book. Right. But yeah. you know, it, it it's sort of you know, saying advertising took over everything is is sort of one note. Okay, right. it is. And and I think we you know. Feel that things are more complicated than that. Right. That doesn't doesn't all all seven. Although if you if you see movies nowadays, they still right. they still do that. They still do that, on, yeah. and, and to some extent, Paul and Cornbluth, but especially Cornbluth, got away with the with the problem of trying to diversify their characters by having everybody utterly in, unsympathetic. <laughs> everybody yeah. was awful. Yeah. Everybody was cynical. Everybody was, which was a very dark view of humanity, and that's a little bit misleading, also. I think. I think in this moment of the science fiction novel, though, one of the things when you say it, it's more complicated mm-hmm. than that, I think that's sort of like should be the the underlying theme of of your book uh, of of a certain kind of yeah, science fiction, which true. it's way more complicated than that old fashioned stuff which we grew up on. And so, what the the problem, the challenge for us is to portray this more complicated these more uh-huh. complicated future and still tell an entertaining story and, and, so and, or, or for me it's like uh, I don't want to portray any particular issue as a matter of black and white right. but I also believe that some things are better than others some things are moral and some things are immoral right. and and so that's a paradox right. you might say how can you have both of those things in the same story but that's what I consciously was trying to do is have have the idea that, that you know that there are right and wrong they're right and wrong is real 
and you know, people are are people benefit and and suffer in, in any society. Uh, but also that uh, that that um, uh, the the uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing it. <laughs> the the, the uh, well, um, but, well, you you have complicated characters and compl- you have a novel. There is a mainstream novel here, which doesn't sure. even need to be on the moon. Right. Uh, oh well, that's true. That you could know. be in Australia. When I was place, when yeah. I was fighting but, my way through the damn book, mm-hmm. there was one point I thought, you know, just set it in in California or Australia <laughs> or someplace <laughs> like that, you know. And then and then I realized, no, no, I, I I really want the moon. I need the moon. The moon is is a harsh mistress. Well, well, the, moon, the reason why the moon has to be, it has to be a place. Removed from all the problems of Earth, so it's a reset right. of society. Right. Reset. And the only place you could find it is on another planet where everything is new and being reinvented. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when when you talk about the Society of Cousins, you know, you say, "Oh, well, they volunteered to go." No, they didn't volunteer to go. Their fathers volunteered to go to the Society of Cousins. These people were born into this right. world right. and not as, exactly as, as are we. Yeah. yeah, right. But before we leave uh, listeners thinking that this is a yeah. terribly cerebral novel about smart people talking to each other on the moon, right. there's a hell of a catastrophe that happens, which is just great special effects come that, up. You know, that was, that was, I always told myself, I have to have a special effects scene. Okay? <laughs> I, have to, I have to have the scene when they make the blockbuster movie right. that, you know, that they, they, they have to use CGI. Uh, right? okay, yeah, so exactly. this is my CGI scene, and, and it, you know. $50 million of CGI, right? At the end <laughs> right, of the exactly. Right, Check exactly. it out. <laughs> And and it's a love story. Uh-huh. And, and, no, it's yeah. meant to be. My uh, subtitle, which uh, Joe Monty didn't want to use, was, uh, uh, you know, the moon and the other, a love story. Yeah. And uh, uh, but you know, probably people reading it won't necessarily see it. Anybody who gets to the <laughs> end, John, will realize it's a love story. Well, it is a love story. <laughs> it takes a while to get there. It's a love story with a lot of yeah. big stuff happening. Yeah. It's sort of like two love stories. Right, exactly. Really, yeah. I've got two well. two couples, right. yep, heterosexual couples, unfortunately, but there well, they are. That's all right. Yep. And well, so this is the moon and the other, and it's out now. I guess just it about is a, as official we're... pub date is April fourth, but, uh, but this weekend we're having a launch. Uh, okay, a little uh, bit ahead of time. Right. And and Mother Go, Mother Go will July eleventh from Audible. Okay, and again, this has been the Code Street Podcast with our. Guest host James Patrick Kelly. And, Yay! And, Come back, Jonathan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 Jonathan, and, put order to the universe. Really? Please. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Jonathan, I hope you can listen to this recording and make sense out of it. And we'll be back with Jonathan next week, but until then, this is the Coot Street Podcast.